Brothers and sisters, Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery is one of the most touching and potent displays of God's mercy. So during this year of mercy, it's apropos that we spend time this Lent reflecting upon this encounter. The passage begins with Jesus traveling from the Mount of Olives to the temple area. The importance of this detail is often lost on us, but it would have been of great significance for a first century Jew. For a first century Jew, this would have evoked thoughts of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel had the unfortunate task of having to inform the Jews that the glory of God, that which made the temple holy, had left the temple area. The reason the glory of God had left the temple was because the worship of the Jews had become corrupt. Those who were supposed to keep God's law were not properly doing so. That is to say, rather than using God's law to bring people into greater union with God, the Jewish leaders began to use it as a way of manipulating others and acquiring power for themselves. In so doing, they corrupted the very purpose of the law. For the law is not intended to be used as a means for one group of people to bind others with heavy burdens. Rather, it's a means of providing true freedom, allowing people to grow in an authentic relationship with God. But since the Jewish leaders used the law to bind people to themselves rather than to God, they ended up with a people who were engaged in a rigorous legalism. And so the prophet Ezekiel said, the glory of God had left the temple and had gone east. To the east of the temple, for anyone who's ever been to the Holy Land, you'd know this, sits the Mount of Olives. So when St. John informs us that Jesus is traveling from the Mount of Olives to the temple, what we're meant to understand is that the glory of God is now returning to the temple. Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy of Ezekiel. He's about to restore the glory of God to the temple. And therefore, it's no wonder that when he arrives in the temple area and begins to teach, he's immediately confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees who are plotting to trap him. They, after all, have benefited from the corruption of the temple worship, and they're not going to give up their power without a fight. And so this dramatic scene unfolds. The scribes and the Pharisees bring before Jesus a woman who they caught in the very act of adultery. Now, adultery, along with murder and apostasy, are the three most grievous sins in sacred scripture. So we mustn't succumb to the temptation to overlook the gravitas of this woman's offense, as Scripture places it on the same level as murder. By bringing the woman to Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes were hoping to seize an opportunity to kill not one, but two grave sinners, the adulterous woman and Jesus, who they believed guilty of the sin of blasphemy. And therefore, they tested Jesus. And they asked him, what do you say? 
Now, clearly, they knew the prescription found in the book of Leviticus, stating that the woman should die for her sin. But they wanted to trap Jesus. Jesus, after all, had made several claims to divinity, most notably the one found in the Bread of Life discourse in the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. But what's more, he not only claimed divinity, but he claimed an authority over the Mosaic law. And we see this when he did things such as healing on the Sabbath. So now, in the presence of this riled up mob, the Jewish leaders are placing Jesus in a situation where he either has to admit that he's a fraud or he has to commit a crime punishable by death. Looking at the situation, we see that Jesus could acquiesce to the Pharisees and scribes by instructing the mob to stone the woman. But if he did that, he would confirm the way in which the Pharisees and scribes approached the law with these cold and stony hearts. And so this isn't an adequate option. His other option seems to be to claim authority over the law in the presence of this mob that's ready to stone anyone. And if he were to do this, though, he'd forfeit his entire purpose, the mission of bringing people into God's loving embrace. If he were to incite the violent mob, the mob would come to know nothing of God's love. And furthermore, the ensuing violence would not only jeopardize the woman who is caught in adultery, but it would also jeopardize the salvation of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the members of the mob as well. And since Christ desires their salvation every bit as much as he desires the salvation of this woman caught in adultery, fighting also proves to be an inadequate option. It's in this tense, no-win situation that Jesus restores the glory of God. And he does so by exposing the sinfulness of the situation. He doesn't cave in to the callous and rigorous legalism of the scribes and Pharisees, but nor does he respond to the violent mob. Rather, he instructs the one without sin to throw the first stone. In doing so, he flipped the situation around on the scribes and the Pharisees. Rather than viewing the law as a means of lording power over individuals, as a means of entrapment and entrapping them into situations where they'll face death. Jesus uses the law to make people aware of their own sin. And he does this so that he can call them to conversion by forcing them to examine their own sinfulness. This gospel passage affirms what St. John already told us at the very beginning of his gospel, namely that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to redeem it. When left alone with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus didn't ignore her sin. He didn't approve of her action, but neither did he condemn her. Rather, he called her to conversion, Go forth and sin no more. And in doing so, the glory of God is restored. Because the glory of God is found not in human beings being condemned for their sinfulness, 
The glory of God, as St. Irenaeus famously stated, is a human being fully alive. Friends, we become fully alive when we turn away from our sins and enter into union with God. The law, the commandments, the teachings of the church, these aren't rules that are meant to burden us. They're not intended to hold us back. Rather, the law helps us to understand what God is like. And by following the law, we become more closely conformed to God. So, for example, we all know that God is truth. And hence, he instructs us not to bear false witness. Why? Because when we say things that are not true, we're separating ourselves from God, who is truth itself. When we speak truthfully, on the other hand, we're not burdened. We're freely participating in God's life. And the same can be said of all of the commandments and all of the laws. In other words, the laws and the commandments are actually part of God's mercy. You know, so often when we think of God's mercy, we think solely in terms of sin and forgiveness. But his mercy is so much more. His mercy is seen in the fact that he teaches us his ways. Not because it benefits God, but because it benefits us. During this year of mercy, it's important that we don't simply reduce God's mercy to the sacrament of penance, as important as that is. We also need to view God's mercy in terms of his glory. We need to restore God's glory to the world. And we do this by approaching his law, not with a rigorous legalism, but as a means for entering into a true union with God. In other words, we need to stop following the law for the law's sake and instead allow the law to transform our lives and to bring us into that personal union with God. When we do that, we'll restore the glory of God and we will become fully alive. Brothers and sisters, peace to you and to all who restore the glory of God to the world.